Test, 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 check, one, two, check, check. Test, one, one, check, one, one. Coming down in three, two, one. I first spotted Trudy Metcalf in a photo on a Chum Radio Top 50 music chart from September 14, 1964, which highlighted the Beatles' first concert in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens. Trudy was the president of the fan club and stood prominently in front of the Fab Four in one of four photos published on the brochure. The Beatles logged eight songs on that chart, including Hard Day's Night, Should Have Known Better, and I Love Her, Matchbox, Slow Down, and I'll Cry Instead, and Dance With You. I recently came across that chum chart, which had been tucked away inside the Twist and Shout vinyl album my sisters once spun on their record player and I spotted that photo of Trudy with George, Paul, John, and Ringo. Underneath the photo, it read, Beatles pose with their fan club president, Trudy Metcalf. How cool would that have been to be the president of the Beatles fan club? And that led me to wondering, whatever happened to Trudy Metcalf? So I went searching, and I found her, and she agreed to be on the podcast and talk about her time as president of the Beatles fan club, her life as an educator, and her work on something called Elder Circles. This is my interview with Trudy Metcalf. Hello, Trudy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How did you become the president of the Beatles fan club in Canada? So here's the story. When I was uh, 13, turning 14, I went to England for the summer. My parents sent me. We were from there. I was born in England, but they felt it was time for me to get to know all the relatives. So I spent the summer spending a week with one aunt and uncle and cousins and moving to the next one and the next one. And it was the summer of 1963. And uh, most of my cousins were a few years older and terribly a lot more mature than I. And so I followed what they were interested in. I stayed with a cousin. And when I was there, the Beatles were on television. And she loved them. And I loved them. And then the next uh, set of relatives I visited... I went on holiday with them for a week to a seaside town called Margate, and as it turned out, the Beatles were playing there that week. So my cousin there, who was in his 20s and very much into jazz and not at all interested, but he took me to see the Beatles, and that was just wonderful. So that, so that was the, I, was, I had just turned 14, I'd never been to a rock concert or any kind of concert before. And I just thought it was amazing. So then the next thing that happened, again, I don't think I would have taken that any further at that point. The Beatles weren't known over here. Um, so then the next set of relatives I visited, I was sitting in their living room, and I opened the newspaper, and there was this article about starting a fan club. And I didn't really have too much to do, <laughs> having spent the summer just touring around with relatives. And so I wrote to the fan club, the address of the... Uh, Beatles fan club in London was there, and Collingham and Bettina Rose were the uh, presidents. I wrote to them, and I said, I'd like to start a fan club in Canada, and I said I was 17, because I figured that was grown up enough to start a fan club. <laughs> and about two months later, I heard back from them. I wasn't really even expecting to, but I was back in Canada and back in high school, and I heard back, and they said, sure, you can start a fan club. But they didn't really say anything else. And, and I didn't even belong to a fan I had no, I really didn't know what running a fan club was about. So I um, 
the, the two radio stations that were teen stations in Toronto at the time where we lived were Chum and CKY, and I phoned them both. And I guess at this point, um, Chum must have been more receptive. And so I went to Chum, and I talked on the radio there, so different to the way it would be now. I gave my home address, my home phone number, and I started getting uh, calls from kids who wanted to be fans. For a few weeks, I couldn't put the phone back on the hook because it would ring. Uh, people wanted to know how many were in the Beatles, what were their names, and then who sang what song, what were their favorite colors, really elementary kinds of things. I think they'd been on the Jack Parr show. They hadn't been on Ed Sullivan at this point. And so I started getting letters, and I just hand-wrote the replies. But, you know, I was 14. I couldn't really even afford to buy all the stamps for this fan club. And I, and I was saying things like, well, the fan club will soon get started, and we'll soon have membership cards and whatever we're supposed to have. So, so that is the very beginning of it. Shortly after that, I was more closely in touch with the fan club in England, and they were really helpful, really helpful throughout. Sent me a lot of up-to-date information. So I, I was on Chum Radio once, and after that, the people at Chum asked if I wanted to have a radio show. At this point, obviously, we were moving into the what became the Beatlemania time, and lots of their records were available, and there was lots of interest. And you're, so, 14, you're 14 at this time. I was 14, yeah. I okay. turned 14 in June, <laughs> and this would have been getting close to Christmas, I guess, or maybe the start of the new year, uh, 1964. Anyway, so um, at the end of the day, on Friday, a taxi would come to my high school and take me down to the... 1050 Chum Station on uh, Young Street, and we would tape a week's worth of half-hour shows. Um, all Pretty well all the information that I had came from the fan club. They were really good at supplying that, and they gave me uh, subscriptions to some of the local or the London-based um, music newspapers, so I was pretty up-to-date on what was going on, and uh, as you would know, after I would tape um, a week's worth, then each night a technician, I guess, would put in the three or four songs that fit mm -hmm. into that time slot. So you were the expert at the age of 14 living in Toronto, right. really before the well, Beatlemania yeah. craze began. You were the expert on the Fab Four. Right. But remember, expert just meant who sang what song, okay. you know, and... <laughs> and who wrote which song, that kind of thing. There wasn't a lot of detail because it was also new. But yes, okay. yeah, and information about a movie coming out and whatever I found in the material that the fan club sent to me, yes. Okay, so this is long before the, uh, the membership cards and anything like that in Canada? I, th I think, yes. Um, what happened quite early on was, I, as I said, when I first went to Chum, I... On the air, I gave my home address and my telephone number. So I started getting a lot of mail. And I realized pretty early on that I really couldn't handle that amount of mail and writing, handwriting by hand and buying the stamps and the envelopes and all that sort of thing. So Chum Radio said they would take over the distribution. It would have been in their interest, obviously, mm -hmm. for, sure. for them to be in the, the home of the fan club. And the following week, I went to Chum and I was taken into the mailroom, and they had these 
drop-down bins that hold letters, and each of the bins held 5,000 letters. And this was only a week later. And they pulled down two of these bins, so oh 10,000 letters, roughly, oh from my. fans. You see 10,000 letters in, in two bins. What happens then? Do you start cracking them open and responding, or was did Chum bring a team in to do that? No, right. There was an arrangement with Chum. They hired a distribution company, which I, I guess well, they would probably take the name and address from the letter and assume that they were all about membership. It cost 25 cents to join. And they would their distribution company would send a membership card and a copy of the first newsletter that I wrote out to them. Okay. So that's how it works. I've seen some. I never had a membership card, if you can believe that. I oh, never really? thought to get one. But I've, I've seen a lot of them that other people had. I thought that was okay. great. So, so what happened from then on, uh, Chum made the card, the membership card, with the logo that came from the fan club in London, so it was all official. And I wrote a newsletter, and they never changed a word of it. I was really pleased about that. A mm -hmm. Usually four-page newsletter that they would send out. They handled the distribution, and I handled the rest of it, I guess. Right on. When they appeared in Toronto, this was after the Ed Sullivan Show, correct? Mm -hmm, right. Okay. So the Ed Sullivan Show, the first ones were February, uh -huh. and they appeared either the end of August or beginning of September the first time in Toronto. Okay. Were you at the Ed Sullivan, or did you, because uh, I know you went, um, I know you were in Toronto with them, but then Chum also sent you to New York. That, that yeah. was just part of the tour? They, they sent me to New York with my dad and my girlfriend, and the idea was that I was to get in and speak to the Beatles, and it would be recorded, and I would send it back to... No, that's right. I would speak to them, and then I would call Chum mm -hmm. and do an interview, and that's more or less what happened, mm -hmm. but it took almost the entire time that we were in New York, three days, to get into the same room as them. Uh, oh, okay. So, so we had letters of in, uh, I had a, a letter of introduction, but if you've ever seen pictures of the Plaza Hotel at that time where they were staying, it's wall-to-wall -wall police, mounted police all the way around. And um, the story that I've told before is that I tried to get in because I had a letter to introduce me to their press person in New York, um, but we were just turned away. Like there were two young girls with my dad, yeah. going in the front door of the Plaza Hotel, and we didn't get anywhere. We were ushered out. And so my dad said, let's get our suitcases, and we'll pull up to the door in a cab. We were staying at another hotel down the street. We'll take a cab, and we'll get out with our suitcases, and I'll walk up to the um, information desk or the check-in desk, and you go around the side. There must be house phones somewhere and phone. So it is. <laughs> so, so my dad took our suitcases, and I and my girlfriend, Dawn, who was with me, walked around to the house phones, and we called up, and someone from where the Beatles were came down and got us, and we spent the afternoon with them and all of the entourage. Oh, that's great. Mm, that was that the, so cool. I guess, the Monday after the first Ed Sullivan show. In New York, you spend the afternoon with them, with their entourage. What did you talk about? What was, well, what was that Well, we like? weren't with them for very long, so... Oh. So getting up to the, they had um, a whole hallway, not just a suite, but a hallway of the Plaza Hotel. And at the end of the hallway, 
the one the, where you had to pass to get into the hallway was um, a desk that covered most of the hallway mm-hmm. and then a very large security guard. So even when we got up to the floor, um, he had a list of names of people who could be allowed through, and fortunately mine was, was on it. Mm-hmm. So we went in, my girlfriend Dawn and I, and they knew that fan club people were coming, the two of us, and so we were given the fan club mail or the mail that they had received during their visit to sort. But oh. we didn't actually sort it. That was just, well, it was a way to get us in there. No one really asked us to do that once we got in. So we were in one of the bedrooms, and there were people coming and going all the time, and I had no idea who a lot of them were. But every now and then, one of the Beatles would come in and talk to us. They were doing... Um, an article at the same time for, I think, the Saturday Evening Post, but I'm not sure. And they were doing it in another part of this big suite. So what I remember, because John was always my favorite, mm-hmm. he came in and he said, oh, are you the fan club people? And I said, yes. And he got down on his knees and he was bowing. And I, you know, I, I mean, I was only 14, but I wanted so badly to think of something really clever to say that he would always remember, right? <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. But I do, I do remember that. Oh. Um, and then, you know, people came in, hello, oh, you're the fan club people, great, how's it going? It seemed to me, looking back from a very long way, that they were just about as excited as anyone else mm-hmm. because it was so new. And they were, I think George hadn't even turned 21 at that point. They were, they were young and this was... Amazing, and we were looking out the window, and every window you looked out, fans and mounted police, and it was very exciting. I'll bet. Wow. So, so we were there for the afternoon, and then there was um, a press uh, cocktail party happening in the hotel toward the end of the mm-hmm. afternoon. And so all of us who had been the, in the entourage, I guess, went out into the hallway. There may, would maybe, I'm guessing, maybe 10 or 12 people at this point, and we were all asked to form a circle in the hallway, and the four Beatles got into the middle, and we all sort of shuffled down together, down the hallway, and into one of the elevators, and then we all shuffled out into the room where the, the cocktail party was. So you were their security almost. I guess, yeah, <laughs> I guess. And so at that point, you know, we had been booked to return to Toronto later that evening, so we hung around. My dad was able to be part of that at the press conference, at the, at the, sorry, the um, press cocktail party. And then a security guard showed us out when it was time to go, and we got in a cab, and we got on the plane and came back here. Did you take any pictures when you were there? No, in that room? no, okay. I didn't. Okay. There are a lot, but no, I didn't yeah. take a camera with me. Okay. And no one's ever asked me that before, and I've never thought about it. Probably would have been a good idea. Well, anyway. Well. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask you. So, you never, uh, you never actually went to the uh, the Ed Sullivan show or or the concerts you came we back went to Toronto to the um, to the stage door for the rehearsal in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and I remember standing beside Cynthia Lennon, who was married to John at the time. But we never, we weren't allowed to get beyond the very entrance of the stage door, and we watched the concert from the hotel room. Okay. Our own hotel room. 
You know, I am. Uh, I, I have seen that photo and uh, referenced the photo of the uh, Chum Top Forty chart for so many years. And I'd look at you standing in front of them in in Toronto, and I think, okay, you all look the same age. You all look like you're in your twenties. But now yeah. it, you you let me know, and it all comes out that you were only like fourteen at the time. That's so cool. It is. I turned fifteen by then, so I was infinitely more mature. But okay. yes. <laughs> I was so, a kid, yeah, exactly. But that's what an opportunity that is. Yeah, uh, that is so yeah. awesome. Yeah, and it was it was so much more than that actually, because there was this radio show, but I got to be on television shows. I was on a show called To Tell the Truth, where there were three of us, and the the celebrity panel had to guess which one of us was the real that, yeah. Trudy. And I was in parades. It was <laughs> it was quite amazing. It really was for someone at that age. So months later, they the Beatles show up to uh, Toronto for, I guess, one of at least, I want to say two shows that eventually... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there and, were two. And uh, what would, tell me about that experience with, uh, you know, you ended up on the, on the Chum chart. Right. So I don't know if you remember something called the Chum Booth, which used to be at the CNE. Okay. And, you know, people would come and sign autographs of the various DJs. So the day started out, I had an appearance at the Chum Booth and uh, signed autographs, which even at the time sounded really ridiculous. I I was fortunate that I always remembered it was reflected glory. That was absolutely it. But anyway, so at the Chum Booth in the um, early afternoon of the show, um, the people there said, you're going to be one of the people welcoming them to Toronto, and you have an opportunity to give a little welcome speech. Mm-hmm. So I had to quickly think of what that would be, and then went to the show. I remember being annoyed because Chum wouldn't give me tickets near the front, no. because not long before that, the Beatles had played somewhere in Europe. I think Scandinavia and some fans had rushed the stage. And I don't think anyone had been hurt, but they were worried about that. So I had to be halfway back near one of the exit doors. And so I watched the show and then had a ticket to the press conference in between the shows, and that was on stage. And I got to give my little welcome speech. And part of it, it was very short, but I remember I said, we love you all very much. And Paul... (laughs) put his hand on my shoulder, looked right in my eyes, and he said, Oh, you don't, do you? And I couldn't think of anything else to say. (laughs) It was great. Anyway, so, and I think Miss Toronto gave them something. Somebody gave them key to the city. You know, there were several of us, but that picture was from when it was my turn. Oh, wow. Paul McCartney touched your shoulder. I will never wash that shoulder again. (laughs) I did wear gloves. Funny how different the styles were then. I had a dress made, and I had a, and it was pink and red, and I had a pink leather hat in that picture that you see. Leather because John liked leather, although mm-hmm. black leather. And I had pink gloves and red shoes, and I still have those gloves. Oh, and I yeah. never, never washed them. But it didn't seem weird for someone yeah. to be wearing gloves. That's no. quite strange, isn't it? It, it was uh, 1964. Mm-hmm. That was the fashion. But you did. Hat and gloves, yes. Yeah. Wow. So how long were you president then of, of the uh, fan club? Probably a year and a half. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not certain. By that time, I would have been, if I can take it from my own, I would have been in grade 12, and I was listening to protest songs and folk music, and I mm-hmm. discovered jazz. 
and things move on. You know, it was it was very much an intense but relatively brief time, Beatlemania. And sure, people have loved the Beatles ever since, but that really intense time was relatively brief. So did you follow their career, like, uh, after Sgt. Pepper, um, Let It Be, that kind of thing? Did you buy their albums? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I did okay. that, certainly. Okay. Okay. And you don't, so you don't know for certain if, like, songs like Dear Prudence or Hey Jude actually were Hey Trude or Dear Trudence. You don't know I'm if they sure, wrote them I'm about you. I'm absolutely certain they weren't. <laughs> okay. Of all, <laughs> I, all... I didn't have that kind of impact. Nothing like, No. <laughs> Yeah, but he touched, Paul McCartney touched your shoulder. You never know. <laughs> that is something, yes, isn't it? Did you see them in the second concert, the second time they came to Toronto? Yes, yes, I did. And the second concert was held in what was called the Hot Stove Lounge at Maple Leaf Gardens. So it okay. wasn't on the stage, and, and I remember standing with a group of people watching. They were um, sitting behind a, a table and answering questions. So I didn't have much uh, involvement in that. And certainly the one-night-a-week radio show just about the Beatles, you can imagine being in radio yourself, that that didn't go on for all that long, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, a period of a number of months. And then it moved to, I did, um, it was called Bits from the Beatles, and they were put into the Saturday evening show. So I would record those, and then someone would insert small snippets about what the Beatles were doing at that point. Okay. I remember somebody telling me that uh, the second time the Beatles came to Toronto that uh, security was very different. It was tighter. I mean, they were more popular, mm. too, at that point. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you remember mm-hmm. that? And I think it was. I've heard that it was in terms of them getting into and out of Maple Leaf Gardens, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, I didn't know anything about that. Okay. And uh, you weren't president at this point? Yes. Oh, you were still president the second yeah, time? Yeah, I think I was, yeah, by okay. the second time. Right. right. Okay, excellent. And then I, I don't really know what happened to it after that point, to the fan club. I don't think someone directly took it over, and there, there is something still in Liverpool, the woman who originally started the fan club back in the 60s. Okay. But, yeah. I Did... think part, part of the reason, perhaps that I was able to spend time with them in New York was because there wasn't an American fan club at that time. It started up just afterwards, and it was called Beatles USA Limited, which I thought uh, was kind of telling. It sounded to me that it was more of a business rather than a 14-year-old trying to run something out of her her, uh, spare bedroom. Mm -hmm. And, And the official name of your fan club was just the Beatles fan club? Yes. Okay. How many in Canada did you, how many members in Canada did you end up having? I've been uh, told it was 90,000. Whoa. Yeah. That, that's pretty impressive. It is impressive. <laughs> yeah, and as I say, I've met all kinds of people who have copies of the newsletters and the membership card that they treasure. I think that's great. Is that something that you put on your resume when you first started applying for jobs? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, I, and I'm always very careful to even mention it now. It just seems so long ago. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if you did, people uh, would want to talk to you for hours about yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. And that would probably be okay. Okay. All right. Um, did you have any contact with them or uh, when they ventured into their solo careers? Because I know, uh, of course, John came back with Yoko and hung out at the hotel. Mm-hmm, Was there mm-hmm. any interaction like no. that? No. No, not at all, and I didn't try. Mm-hmm. I saw them, John and Yoko, when they came kind of as a surprise 
two. It was Varsity Stadium, part of U of T in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the program was called. You know, the headli- a... headliners were The Doors, uh-huh. and then John and Yoko appeared. Okay. I saw that. That was the last time. Yeah, but but no, it never occurred to me actually to try and go backstage or any of that sort of thing. That's really not something I'd do. So musically, you collected all of their albums as the Beatles, but separately, have you collected any of their stuff? Um, I think I have one of the George. I have All Things Must Pass. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of the band, well, Band on the Run, I mean, the Wings. And we went to see Paul McCartney appearing in Ottawa last year, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. I loved yeah. it. So you mentioned the interaction that you had with Paul and uh, with John. Any any conversations you remember with George and Ringo? No, no, I don't. I remember George being quite shy. He would come and look out the window and leave again. Okay. No, no. Is there, I know you've probably been asked this question a million times, but I will ask you a million and one. Is, okay. there, a favorite, is there a favorite album of the Beatles? Hmm, probably... My favorite is the second side of Abbey Road. Okay. Yeah, and um, I liked when I first saw them in England, they had an EP that was Twist and Shout. I think it was there were four songs on it, and that one I treasure too. Okay. You know, that's the black and white, uh, the Twist and yes. My yes. sister had yes. the twi- Twist and Shout album, mm-hmm. uh, and they're jumping off like a building or something. It was in a Capitol Records. Yes, that's right, I, yes. I and I think was. because... That was the main one that we worked from when I was first connected with Chum Radio. Okay. That was the one that was out. Oh, awesome. So, years go on. The years pass. Whatever happened to, to Trudy Metcalf? I've always been in education. It's always been a variation on education. And I think it actually ties to my connection with the Beatles in that I've always been really interested in my own age set or my own cohort or what's happening to the group that I'm a part of, right? Mm -hmm. And so I taught school, I worked as a grief counselor, I've done a lot of counseling work, and then uh, I did a master's in education, and then I, through my parents actually, because my parents were entertainers, they did a lot of performing in their 70s particularly, and I met a lot of people in their 70s and 80s who were doing really cool and interesting stuff. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should learn something from older people. So I did a PhD in education because I wanted to be able to work and do research in gerontology, study of, in this case, the social or psychosocial aspects of growing older, not geriatrics, which is the medical side. So I thought, okay, I need some credibility So I did a a doctorate in education, but my focus was always on aging. And my question was, um, what do uh, elders or older people have to teach us about the experience of growing old? So as part of that, um, I developed a kind of older adult learning model, which I've called Elder Circles. I think the name isn't specifically mine, but it involves small groups of older adults who get together in a facilitated circle, Mm -hmm. usually once a week for an hour or so at a time, to talk together about the experience of growing older. Now, you would think that was terribly negative, but it isn't. It's amazingly 
positive because they're learning from each other. This is the education aspect of it. It's a collaborative learning process, and it's amazing to hear people in their 80s say, you know, now I have a much better idea about this time of my life and that it is a separate time from midlife and, mm-hmm. and that being an old person isn't all about what you've lost and the diminishment and decline. It's about what there is still and what the wow. what third stage of life is really all about. So, so they're getting strength from each other in telling those yes. stories. Yes, exactly. And I use that model in my doctoral work because I thought, okay, I'll learn from these people and then I'll write it up and then I'll move on from there to whatever's next. But I found they learned from each other. So I thought they already knew everything about, you know, if you're 80, you know all about it. But you don't necessarily. And and people have often said to me, you know, I can get together with my closest friends. We never sit down and say, okay, let's talk about being old. (laughs) We talk about our next doctor's appointment, but we don't really talk about what the experience is and, and what it can be. And so... So this gives people an opportunity. You just create the space and facilitate it, and people are able to collaborate and learn from each other. And as you say, you know, I've I've taken many, many, many hundreds of hours of um, taped interviews and turned them into things that I've written about elder circles and their benefits. How many how many seniors, how many elders, pardon me, have have you spoken to? Have been a part of these circles? Oh, <clears throat> hard to say. Hundreds, I guess. Never more than 10 at a time, Uh preferably six or eight, because if it's more than that, people aren't likely, some of them might not be that likely to engage in conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How long has the study been going on? Um, About 10 years or so. And the idea, I mean, it really is such a simple idea, and my hope is that, has always been that, other groups will take the idea and apply it somewhere else. So, for example, um, a community uh, mental health organization in southwestern Ontario, actually close to the area where you live, took the idea of elder circles and used them as a way of coming to understand more about older adult depression and suicide ideation. So, so that's not my background at all, but that was a mental health outcome that used that particular model. And here in Ottawa, a friend and I have developed something called reading circles where we we gather together groups of older adults in the public library system and we we run elder circles but they're related to text about growing old poems, novels, memoir, all that sort of thing. And the nice thing about running elder circles that way, and a lot of people here have been trained to do that as volunteers now, so it's not just, not just me. Okay. Um, the nice thing about that is that people can, if they feel less comfortable talking personally, they can tie their comments to the text. Mm-hmm. But you know that inside they're tying it to their own situation. Mm-hmm. The thing about elder circles is they're elder-driven so I would never go to one and say, today let's talk about such and such. But um, I would go each week and pay attention to what the conversation had been the week before and what were the things that came up that we didn't actually get to. Okay. 
Boy, there wasn't a Beatles song written about you, but you were influenced by one. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm uh, 64? The summer before last, I wrote and delivered a special topics course in gerontology at Laurentian University in Sudbury, and it was all about older adults and social isolation, which is a really serious problem, like you were talking about loneliness. And so I called it The Sad Life of Eleanor Rigby, and we looked closely at the, the lyrics to that particular song, too, before we moved into academic writing. What can people learn from the elder circles? What can younger people learn from them? Oh, that's interesting. I think the best thing that they do, in an, the elder circles do in an intergenerational way, is to start conversations that might not already happen. Mm-hmm. Or, so um, people in our elder circles might be thinking and talking about something and then go home and talk to children or grandchildren. It's a way uh, that their grandchildren, for many of the people that we work with, the grandchildren would probably be at least in their teens, if not 20s. So it gives them an opportunity to talk with the grandparent about perhaps more meaningful things. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I don't know what impact it has on them at that point, but perhaps it informs the way they start to live their life. Most of the research, that, though, is it conducted in the Ottawa area, or have you traveled? Um, um, I've traveled in making presentations at conferences, mm-hmm. but it's either been, we lived in Orangeville before we moved here five years ago, so it would have been the greater Toronto area and north and southwest toward Guelph Kitchen or so on. I've been involved in programs there, and then we moved here to Ottawa, and so it's been happening here. Mm-hmm. But, you know... I, Some of my work, too, and I hope more and more, is delivered online. So the courses that I teach for Laurentian, I can still do when I'm here. And a couple of years ago, I wanted to know whether the Elder Circle model, which had always been face-to-face, round the table, uh, whether that could be translated into an online format effectively. Mm -hmm. So through the Sheridan Center for Elder Research, which is based in Oakville, I've now run two online elder circle research projects and you know they work beautifully mm-hmm. so there's potential for that for people who are no longer mobile or whose hearing is impaired or for whatever reason can't get out as well they can still have stimulating conversation and they can still learn to me it's all about learning mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives although most of the study is or most of the seniors the elders that you are speaking to are in the ottawa area really <laughs> an elder in the ottawa area an elder in bc elders have a lot in common because of their age because of their experience so it really doesn't i guess what i'm saying is it doesn't matter where they're located they can they we all kind of think and oh exactly and two things about that one is that since we've Uh, the two online Elder Circle projects I was involved in, neither of the participants in in either of those lived in the Ottawa area. Hmm. They were all um, southern Ontario, southwestern Ontario. But I think it would be amazing for older people from other parts of the country 
to get together. For example, in one of the elder circles, there was a group of people who said, you know, we really need to talk about a roadmap for old age. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be cool to have people from different parts of the country all contributing to that? The two online elder circles that I did, the people didn't know each other. They never saw each other. They never actually heard each other because I wanted to make it as simple as possible. So it wasn't Skype. It was all all of the communication was through the fingers. That was it. Oh, wow. Um, you're, then you're, you're based right now, you're teaching out of Laurentian University, is that correct? Yes, not a lot. I don't do that full-time at all. I just do, mm-hmm. you know, one or two a year. Okay. And whatever else comes along. I just finished a two-year federally funded project that delivered elder circles to seniors or older adults who live in community housing or social housing in Ottawa. And that was a really interesting experience. Trained a number of volunteers to to run those programs. So it is expanding. Uh, would you say? I hope in the so. Process? Yeah, hope I'm so. open to whatever opportunities come along. I'm 67 at this point, which in some days seems like 14, and some <laughs> days seems like 100. But you know, I I spend a lot of time with people considerably older, and there, so there always seems to be this horizon moving further and further ahead. Let's go back to uh, back to your twenties when you started. Uh, you got into uh, education. Like, were you were you teaching at first, or was it yes. always in gerontology? No, no. The gerontology came fifteen years ago. Oh, okay. Or I guess when I turned fifty, that was it. When my mom turned fifty, she quit her job, sold her house, moved to another continent, and married someone, and together they started a business about which they neither of them knew very much. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, when I turn 50, there's no way I'm going to do all of that, but it's time to do something new. And I had paid attention to, I I mentioned, you know, she was an entertainer and she wrote reviews and Mm -hmm. review sketches, that kind of thing. And I thought, wow, older people do really interesting things and I haven't paid very much attention to them. But that was when I was late 40s at the very earliest. Mm -hmm. So before that, it was about education of children, special education, that I became very interested in adult education. And that was mostly about helping people who had quit school before getting their high school diploma. Mm. And for whatever reason, had in their 30s and 40s decided that it was time to come back and get their high school diploma. Mm. And then I taught in a community college um, often, it was the Mississauga area, often they were people who were new to Canada, had had a career in some other country and realized pretty quickly that without um, work experience in Canada, it was difficult for them, or some kind of education in Canada. So they would be taking night school courses, and I taught career development, personal development, all that sort of thing. And I came to be interested in how loss plays out in people's lives. Because all of these people, they've lost their community, they've lost their status, you know, moving to a new country. So I trained to be a grief counselor, which is very much about loss, but it's about coming fully back to life. Anyway, so again, that was education, but another aspect of it, and it was around that time that I thought, I want to do something with older people And I have no background or credibility, and so I should take some more training. And I thought a PhD would be an interesting idea. And it was. It opened a lot of doors. Wow. You know, just in listening to you, 
just in listening to you from your early experience, you know, as a teenager starting a fan club, um, the study of gerontology, speaking to as a grief counselor, speaking to new Canadians, mm-hmm. who you have this fascinating knack for introducing people to something new. Oh, thank you. I hadn't thought of that before. Is it's it's the it's the teacher in you, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I <laughs> think so. I love the idea that teaching and learning are two sides of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So in teaching, you're always learning. There's always something new to learn about, I think. Yes, certainly is. Yeah. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful. Thank you so much for being a part. Okay. Thank you too. Okay. All right, then. You have a great day. You too, Trudy. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Trudy Metcalf, only 14 years old when she started the Beatles fan club in Canada. Links to her work with Elder Circles are posted on the Station to Station website. You've been listening to Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that are posted to the website. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a reply at the bottom of this page or send an email to s2spod at gmail.com. You'll also find that address on the About Joe page. Subscriptions to my podcast are free. If you follow this site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. All you have to do is go to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. You can even sign up a friend. That's all. We'll see you on the next podcast.